hand. Powerful word of God. He saved lives. Heal broken hearts. And heal man's soul. Here's our prayer, Lord Jesus, today. Speak to me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Look at each other and go, man, it's been a long time, so I love you. Okay, I need somebody who will read a verse of Scripture for me. Do I have a volunteer? I want you to stand and I want you to read Judges 21 and 25. Judges 21 and verse 25. Okay, Brother Don. Last verse of the book of Judges sums up the violence, the sin, the idolatry, the inconsistency that really detail this whole historical book. Everyone did as they saw fit. Uh, to be honest with you, that's the recipe for disaster, amen? <laughs> We're living it today, to a large extent, living it today. From that verse to the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, not much changes. There's still no king. Everyone's still doing what is right in their own eyes. Things are still bad. Israel was under oppression of the Philistines and the Ammonites. There didn't seem to be any end in sight. For the wars, the struggles with other nations. And from this verse, we also read it sure seems like the Bible was suggesting that the answer is a king. Maybe that's what the people need. But if you read in your Bible this chapter and from our story, from our book, The Story, in chapter 10, you're going to read about a woman named Hannah. Great story. Uh, God shows great kindness as she pleads for a son. He is gracious and she becomes pregnant. She receives the child as God promised. Then she gives that son to the Lord to serve him. And she followed through on her side of the promise. See, oftentimes we'll make a promise to God, but then when he does his part, we forget to do our part. <clears throat> if you'll do your part the way God promised and you promise God that you will, great things will come to you because of it. Amen? Okay, I'll wait. Amen? Amen. I'll wait for the whole church. Amen? Amen? Somebody give me a witness in this church house. Come on now. I've been listening to a lot of black gospel music this week. I might just start changing the way I preach. Mm-mm, I need an organ player, though. That would help me a lot. Because when I say something profound, they're going to come on that organ now. And you're going to come alive. Ain't that right, brother? That's right. Somebody's going to shout hallelujah. Somebody's going to jump up and down. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Watch out. Okay, well, we'll just act the way we've always acted. Never. I'd hate to see some of you get overly excited about the Lord. Hmm. Samuel lives with a priest named Eli and his two sons. And Samuel is trained and grows up learning how to become a priest. Now, even though Eli's sons 
uh, fall away from the Lord. That's an that's a easy way to put it. Samuel grows up to be a very godly leader in Israel. But as Don read this verse, and we read it earlier, again it says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And once it became obvious that Samuel was getting a little older, <laughs> his own sons didn't seem like they were following in their dad's footsteps. All the elders of Israel gathered together in a scene that is reminiscent of a protest, and they come along outside with picket signs, and they scream and they shout of frustration and demand for things to change. And it seems like everyone believes that the same problem is right there. They all think that by having a king, everything would change. All the problems would go away. Everyone knew that this was a problem, <clears throat> except for one, and that was the God of the universe. Evidently, it had escaped his notice. So this angry group pickets, tells the priest and the leader, God's representative in their community. That's what they want. They start in 1 Samuel 8, 4, and 5. They say, we want a king. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So God tells Samuel, you need to understand something. It's not, that you, it's, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's me they are rejecting. I was their king, evidently, apparently, that wasn't really good enough for them, God is telling Samuel. So Samuel does, doesn't like it, and with all the emotions that he can muster, he begins to pray and to talk to God about what's taking place. And Samuel, on behalf of God, warns the people, a king won't be exactly what you imagine. He warns them that the king will want them to be servants, housekeepers, farmers, soldiers. And oh yeah, one more detail. The king is going to tax you as well. Sound vaguely familiar? Have you read your history books? Or have you just forgotten? But the people don't care. Really? They don't care? Goes in one end, out the other. And what happened if was it was it was as if they were all shouting, "We want this king! We want a king!" And that'll fix everything. Give us a king! Give us a king! Sometimes God does what an earthly father does. He allows immature children to get what they desire. So the child who says, "I want all I want to do is eat candy," well, sometimes the dad, out of frustration, will say, "Okay, fine. You want candy? I'll give you candy." And for the next twenty-four hours, gives him all the candy he can eat. After a couple hours, he said, my stomach's hurting. Too bad. If you want a candy, you can have a candy. Here you go. Eat all the candy you want. He's got candy everywhere. Candy here, candy there, candy this, candy that. Got to have it. Come on. And the kid thinks he's going to blow up. I don't want any more candy. Well, why not? It's what you wanted before. Come and eat it. Come on. Well, that's what God's allowing the nation of Israel to do right here. God sometimes says yes to things even when He knows it's not best for us in order to teach us a lesson. Just like parenting. Just like parenting. Amen. Just like parenting. Amen. Did your dad have to do this? Did he have to drag it out? Sometimes God says yes to our prayers. And you might say, boy, Lord, just make me successful. 
Let me have a larger salary. Let me live in a nicer home. Give me a corner office. And then you get that success and you forget everything else. And in your heart of hearts, you'd love to go back to when life was simpler and when you could get a good night's sleep. (laughs) Someone worded the question to say, which would you rather be, rich and depressed or poor and yet happy? I saw a great answer. Could I be moderately wealthy and moderately depressed? (laughs) Israel chose a king over God, but that choice isn't quite as straightforward as it appears. And at the time, their choice seemed to make sense. It was obvious. I mean, every other nation had this powerful king. Why can't we have one? These guys play football in jinx. I told Big T, I said, man, you've got two rings. He goes, yeah, I'm going to have four. (laughs) That's a lot of confidence or cockiness talking right there, isn't it? Some guys never see one. Some guys never see the opportunity to even get one. You see. But everybody had one, so we need one. But the reason is it seemed that there was no better option that Israel was too nearsighted to see the big picture that God was doing in the world. So they make three foolish choices. Let me quickly give them to you. Number one, they chose power over purpose. Power over purpose. The choice was by the Israelites. They chose power over purpose. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, we were studying in the story and in the Bible about a man that God called Abram. Remember that one? He was later called Abraham, but he called Abram to be and to start this nation of Israel. He said, you'll be a blessing to all nations. Everyone will be blessed through you. Well, here's what we've got to remember. God didn't just make a nation. He made a nation with a purpose. That wasn't some haphazard, accidental thought in his mind. He had a purpose for them. The same reason that you and I were created was for a purpose. We have a purpose. Do you know what the purpose is? Can anybody tell me what the purpose is that God made you and me for? And don't go to heaven by yourself. You're not supposed to come to heaven by yourself. You're supposed to bring somebody with you. Well, I have my wife and my kids. You have no guarantee that they're going. You see... My son Corey at 10, he said, Dad, I don't need to be baptized. You're the preacher. (laughs) That'd be like some of you guys saying, well, Dad, you're an elder. I don't need to be baptized. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. It's all about that personal relationship, isn't it? I can't can't get them there. I'd love to. They're going to have to make a personal decision. I can't imagine Kelsey not going to heaven. I just can't. That girl's so far ahead of me when I was six. Well, she's so far ahead of a lot of people at six. She's reading at a second and third grade level already, and she's only in kindergarten. And the teachers don't really know how to judge her because they've never had a kid like her before. Of course, it's Inola. What do you think? It's because of her mother's influence in her life. There's no doubt. I knew, I knew he'd echo that. 
But see, there's no twists in this story. There's no unexpected turn that God didn't understand. He knows the story and He knows it well. And He knows what's going on right now because He has a plan. And the way God led Israel, the way they won their battles, the way His power was on display had a purpose. It was so that people could see that God was powerful. Not so much that Israel was powerful, but that God was powerful. It was so that the people could begin to understand that God's in control. So in 1 Samuel 8, the people forget all about the purpose. And so what do they do? They lose sight of the big picture of what God's doing with their nation. And they make a small choice that leads them down a bad road. How many of you have made in your life a bad decision that led you down the wrong road? And how many of you stopped somewhere on the road and said, "Uh Uh-oh, I'm going to go back and get on the right road. How many can raise our hands several times in that process? Yeah. How many of us have a, God says, hey, 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 hey. And we go, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Remember what the elder said to Samuel. You're old. Your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. See what the king, you know, what's taking place. Israel is motivated by fear. They see other armies starting to swarm around them. They see kings and other nations building up massive military campaigns. And they think, you know what? We would be better, much better off if we just had this king. If we had an army that was fighting under the leadership of that military leader. I mean, the Israel decides that they need power. Power that they can see. Power that can intimidate others. Power that compares to every other nation. America has run on the power of authority. And now we've run away from God. And that's why we're losing power. Because we've run away from God. It's not because we have nuclear armaments. It's because we've run away from God. And if we don't run back to God, we'll cease to exist as a nation. So we better wake up, America. We better wake up, church. And wake up fast. Because it's going to close soon. And the darkness is going to rise high. And we're going to say, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Ha <laughs> ha! Hmm. And always remember, they're going to take us out first, us preachers, because we're not supposed to preach to you like this. We're supposed to tell you, everything's all right. Got a song about that. You want to hear? Everything's going to be all right. That's what we're going to sing. I got a feeling everything's going to be all right. Yes, I. Yes, I. They forgot that the purpose of the way their nation fights battles is to point people to God. When are we as a church going to wake up and realize that the only way to survive is to point people to God? And when we do that as a church, then we might be able to affect our nation and our world. But see, we got the church pointing to all kinds of things besides God. We've got big name preachers in our brotherhood of Christianity who are telling you and me that Islam and Christianity are the same, worship the same God. No, we don't. Read and understand, people of God. Wake up, church. Oh, and now he's picking on the Muslims. Yes, because they're going to kill you and kill me as soon as they can because we're the infidel. I, as the pastor of this church, will not let a Muslim come and preach from the pulpit here. 
Sorry, it don't work. Because Allah is not the same God of Yahweh because He's a jealous God. And He doesn't share us with anybody. Hear me? Hear me, church. Times are coming. Dark clouds are rising. Enemies on the prowl. And if you don't believe it, get your head out of the sand. Open your eyes. And open your heart. Because Jesus is still on the horizon. And guess what? Though darkness rises, my Lord will rise higher. Get ready. Get ready. And when you start screaming and hollering for the mountains to fall in on you, when you start finding the holes to climb into, go back and read Matthew chapter 22 and 23. You'll find out why you're doing that. They forgot. And they forget that their military conquests were dramatically given them victory because they were so far outnumbered they couldn't have won without God. This country can never turn around. This church can never turn around until the church says, I want God to be the leader of my heart. I want God to be on the throne of my life. And once we turn the church around, we turn the country around. When we turn the country around, then we can turn the world around. But we'll never turn any of it around until First Chronicles 7.14 happens. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then, then I will hear from heaven. I will turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. He said, if my people, he didn't, he didn't talk about all the, all the non-Christians. He didn't talk about all the atheists. He didn't talk about all the Muslims. He said, if my people who are called by my name, well, that's the church. So it has to start in the church. If it doesn't start in the church, it'll never start anywhere. Oh, man. You, oh, man. Oh, yeah, now I'm uncomfortable today in the church. <laughs> oh, you don't know uncomfortable. And you know, the temptation to choose power over purpose is still a strong one today. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than ours. That's why God specializes in raising up unknowns like Mother Teresa, like Tim Tebow, like Bubba Watson, like Harold Phillips, like Tyler Thomas, like Brad Caleb. These are all unknowns. But God raises us up to do something great for God. Amen? So you've got to get ready. See, we don't know what Don and Pat are going to do with those doctors down in Dallas, but they're going to do something. Because <laughs> when he comes through this surgery, and there's no explanation for why he's getting so much better, and they're going to sit back in amazement and go, well, look what we did. They didn't do anything. God did it. God gave them the knowledge to do it. He gave them the body to work on. Here we go. And they're going in with the faith to make it happen, and we're going to undergird that with prayer. Amen. Amen. You see how it all works. Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So choose to allow God's purpose to take precedence over our desire to control and out, outcome, uh, and the outcome of the situation. The temptation of Israel was to choose power that they could not see over a purpose that they didn't want. 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 and 20. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. You see, they wanted to be just like everybody else. And that's the problem. 
is that we're trying to be just like the culture that's around us so that the culture will say, whew, I can go to that church. No, we want you to come in the door and feel uncomfortable. We want you to come in the door and realize that you're a sinner saved by the grace of God. Brian's devotion was so right. You know what the church is full of? It's full of sinners. That's where they go. Not to hell. They go to church to stay from going to hell. Amen. And we need to be about the business. But we're not. We just sit back and we want to be like everybody else. Entertain me, brother. Entertain me. You know, we don't have a band. And we don't have a worship band. And we don't have all of this. And we don't have all of that. And we don't have all... Well, what do we have? We got Jesus on the cross, risen from the grave. That's what we got. I love the little young man that sat in Trimble's office and said, what do you got to offer me to come play football for you? He said, those gold balls up there on the shelf. He goes, what else? What else? He wanted a fancy looking facility is what he wanted. Because the fancier the facilities, the better I look. Hmm. I believe this church can still save people, don't you? I still think the water of grave of baptism still works at this church, doesn't it? But it never will unless we let it. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. We are never told to blend in. In fact, we're commanded to stand out. If the definition of the church in the New Testament, it means to be called out. The Bible talks about how we are strangers and aliens. We're a peculiar people. We're not of this world. This world is not my home. I'm just fitting in. My treasures are all set up in my driveway and my house. The angels beckon me, but I tell them I've got deaf ears. Because this world's not my home. I'm just fitting in. I just did that just now. I'm just so proud of myself. Samuel and God listened to all the people saying we need to fit in. We need to be like everybody else. We need to have a king. And God says to Samuel, anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. (laughs) And thou, Saul. Perfect picture of what you would expect from a king. He's young, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. Like all of these up here on the front row. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm. Young and strong and handsome. How? They can smile at you and you're going, how? I love taking this bunch right here to see how why. Because normally youth groups don't have all the boys. They've got, a, they've got all the girls and a couple of boys. See, we got all the boys. So the girls look at our youth group while our youth group is looking at all the girls. And they're looking at the girls going, I wonder if we could save these girls to Jesus, Brother Harold. <laughs> I said, well, fellas, that's going to take some personal contact. That's exactly what I was thinking, brother. I think, I think they put that Bible under their arm and they start heading over to those girls to share Jesus with them. Amen and amen. Oh, he had... They had no king, but this king is going to look good. Oh, he's going to look good. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Which led them to their second foolish choice, and that was circumstances over salvation. Circumstances over salvation. First Samuel chapter 12. Samuel is going to begin a transition of leadership. You see, transition in leadership happens all the time. Did you notice that? 
Here in America, it can happen every four years or eight years, depending on who the president is. But after eight years, usually we've had enough. And I don't care who it is, we usually have had enough. It's kind of like most leaders. They don't keep growing, <laughs> so why follow them? They're not leading anywhere. But I'm telling you, they wanted a leader, and they wanted a king, and they wanted what they wanted. And the handwriting's on the wall for Samuel, and he's going to give his farewell speech. Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky is one of, it is, our largest independent Christian church in America. They run over 40,000 people in their weekend services. Can you imagine doing communion every Sunday for 40,000 people? That's a lot of grape juice, by the way. <clears throat> they probably have a, their own Welch's plant right there in the parking lot. But Bob Russell was the preacher there for 40 years. And the way, they, <clears throat> the way they decided to do this some years ago, when they saw that Bob was going to eventually retire, is they reached back 20 years, now actually 40 years, a generation, and they, they hired a young man to be, no, it's 20 years, it's a 20-year increment. And they, they reached back 20 years and hired a young man to follow Bob. Then, after a period of years, they went 20 years and found another one to follow Dave. So Dave Stone was the guy that's going to follow Bob Russell. And so Bob Russell stands up at church and uh, six years before he's actually going to retire and he hands a baton and he uses that as an analogy and he, he calls Dave up and he says, I want to hand this baton to you and I want to encourage you to keep running the race. And Dave goes on to say in the story that it was an emotional roller coaster for everybody, for Bob, for him, for the whole church. And he says, but it was strange really for Dave because now Bob was leaving and Dave was going to be the guy. And so as he got ready to leave, it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he noticed that Bob was still at the door shaking hands with people. Thank, they were thanking him for the 40 years of, of, of service to, to the church. And Dave and his wife, they head out. And as they're leaving, they notice Bob's car is still parked in his designated parking spot. And so Dave real quickly writes a note and leaves it on the windshield. To whom it may concern, please move your vehicle, as this is a reserve spot signed, the current holder of the baton. Dave said he got a kick out of it. At least he said that, that Dave said that Bob got a kick out of it. At least that's what his lawyer told him. <laughs> so that same week that Bob retired was the North American Christian Convention in Louisville, and the church was the main function of it, but downtown Louisville was where a lot of it was going on. And so he wasn't at church a lot that week. But one, one night late, Dave and his wife went by the church office, and he said it's something he'll never forget. He said he went into his office, but he glanced over to Bob's office, and it was completely empty. All the shelves that were stocked, you know, I mean, chocked full of books were gone. Everything was gone out of there, and he said it was really an eerie feeling to walk into that office, and it'd be totally barren. And he said he, said he finally realized this is really not Bob's office anymore. And he said, it's certainly not mine yet. But his wife walks over to the desk, and she says, hey, he left you a note. Did you see it? Well, here's what the note said. Dave, thank you for all that you've done for me and for your support all these years. My prayers as I leave today is that this office will be a place where, you walk, where your walk with God is continually deepened, where many great sermons will be written, and your wonderful sense of humor will be often expressed. I'm so thankful that you are the one moving in. God bless you, Bob. And he said after reading that, he looked at his wife, and she had tears rolling down her face, and 
He said, I'll never forget because I looked at my wife and she looked at me and she said, say, what did you put on his windshield? He said, ah, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> because back here in 1 Samuel 12, there's a transition that's going, but it's not going to be quite as smooth as what Bob and Dave experienced. In fact, it was doomed from the very start because God had already said this is a bad idea. Samuel has already said this is a bad idea, but Samuel knows that his time of influence in Israel is coming to an end. And so after Saul is appointed king and there's a huge celebration in Israel, Samuel gathers everyone together and draws their attention back to the past, to those earlier chapters in their story. He reminds them of God's power, God's provision, God's salvation. He reminds them that God led them out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. God raised up the judges to lead them. It was a recap of what we've already studied so far. In our story. And then in a subtle way though, everything that he's saying as if he were trying to tell Saul, remember the past. Remember how our nation got to where it, where it is. <coughs> it was God. It wasn't man. And when his speech reaches a pitched top high, Samuel goes for the jugular in verse 12 of chapter 12 when he says, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you and it will be, it was as against you as it was against your ancestors. So no matter what God had done for Israel in the past, no matter how powerful and how unfailing He had been to them, the current circumstances were so overwhelming that they became too nearsighted to see what God was going to do in the big picture. Does that sound familiar at all? But before we're too condescending on these Israelites, we've got to ask ourselves a few questions. How are you and I responding to circumstances? <laughs> circumstances cause us to forget what it is that God has done in our past. What it is that He's taught us. We forget that God is the one who saved what seemed to be an un a failed marriage. God is the one who gave our lives purpose. God is the one who helped us in the midst of that unhealthy work relationship. God is the one who renewed our hope after a difficult season in life. And in the midst of the stress and the busyness, God can work in the midst of our circumstances. And in verses 14 and 15 that I just read for you, they're very important because Samuel says that if they and their king follow God, things are going to be okay. But if you don't follow God, He's going to turn against you just like He did your forefathers. Which leads them to the third foolish choice, and that is options over obedience. Options over obedience. Saul starts off pretty well as the first king of Israel. I mean, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Literally and figuratively, he obeys God. He listens to Samuel. He's fighting the enemies of Israel with God on his side. But all that changed when Saul was too nearsighted to see the big picture. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is sent by God to wage war against the Amalekites, tells Saul to defeat the army, and then he gives him specific instructions. He says, defeat the army, destroy every person, make certain that you, you kill every sheep, every donkey, every camel, all the people of the city. Take nothing 
for the troops. He was very clear. And you might say, well, why? Why would God do that? Well, because the whole town, the Amalekites were pagans. They were enemies of God. And God wanted them completely wiped out to remind Israel who was in charge. And then there's this phrase in 1 Samuel 15. Just two words. <coughs> and those two words, but Saul. <laughs> but Saul. Instead of destroying everything, he spares King Agag, the leader of the Amalekites, spares the best sheep, best cattle, everything that was valuable. And Samuel comes to confront Saul. And when Samuel comes, I want you to listen to what Saul's first words are. Verse 13. Lord, bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. King Saul sees Samuel coming. He sounds like a little kid. I didn't eat those two cookies, though he's got chocolate all over his face. <coughs> Never will forget my kids been in the homemade cookies. I said, who ate these cookies? Oh, no. All of them. <laughs> they kept pointing at Mark because he was the youngest. But I noticed the older two had a little more chocolate than Mark did. And Mark had... Quite a bit because he didn't know how to eat it all. But. <laughs> but listen to Samuel's response. Samuel asks, well then, is that the bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears? And the lowing of the cattle that I hear? In other words, if you destroyed all the livestock, why is it that I said it sounds like Dr. Doolittle's garden out here? So Saul immediately begins to justify his actions. Look at verse 15. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice. Yea, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So Saul immediately blames the soldiers and throws them under the chariot. And when he's confronted, Saul doesn't respond with humility or brokenness. Instead, he gets defensive. He shows pride and a note for us all in the fact that if we're caught, repent. 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 Be sincere and repent. And when someone criticizes you or questions you about some behavior, the first thing you should do is listen and ask yourself, where's the truth in this? Is there any truth in this? Do I need to adjust my lifestyle? You see, a humble person, when things go wrong... They look for a way to take some type of responsibility, but a proud person blames everybody else. It's always somebody else's fault. If you're a kid and you're having a rough time growing up, it's because your parents were lousy. I love the little girl out in New Jersey that wanted to go to a high school, and she decided she ran off, she left the house because of the rules. But then she sued her parents so that they would pay for her to go to this special school. Really? I'm so glad we got a judge that finally has some common sense. <clears throat> really? What do your parents owe you, young people? Everything? Zero. You want a car? Work and get it. I drove a 1960 Chevy Impala. Paid $250 for that thing. Had glass packs, man. 
No air conditioning. Two windows down, 60 mile an hour. Had a 260 air conditioner. So when somebody criticizes you, take responsibility. Learn from it. Filter what they're saying. See if you can grab a truth out of there. Look at verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. Soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. <coughs> Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. What's he saying? He's saying your heart of obedience is better than your token offerings. Your heart of obedience is better than what you burn on the altar or what you throw in the offering plate. God's looking for obedience from you, not tokenness. Boy, look what I'm doing, God. Really, what are you doing? Saul was trying to figure out the best option. What seemed like the best idea to him. And you've got to understand this. Even though he, what, what, what he did was inherently a bad thing, sacrificing things to God, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. Unless, unless God commands you to do something else, then you ought to do what He tells you to do. Saul did was, what Saul did was almost obedience. How many of you understand what I'm saying about almost obedience? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, is this the best option? See, we're always looking out for ourselves. Always looking out for ourselves. Maybe we can utilize and leverage this king a little bit in some way to some of our enemies. I mean, you know, he's got his own agenda, but it's a very different than God's agenda. And he did what he thought was best, but God expected total obedience, full obedience. Do you ever give a God options? Do you ever try to keep your options open like Saul did? God tells you he wants you to go on a short-term mission trip and you think... You know, I don't think I want to do that, but I'll, I'll pay for somebody else to go. That way I've saved my conscience. Well, God's not sending somebody else. He wants you to go. He wants you to go. Hmm. Well, maybe God, you know, we need to have a vacation Bible school. Well, how about you get involved in it? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't have time. But we've got to have one. Well, what do you got to have one for? Well, because we need one. Well, what, if we need one and you really believe in it, then why don't you get involved in it? Well, but I don't have time. Well, then how can somebody else not have time if you don't have time? If God's giving you the vision, you follow through on the vision. Amen? No, no, Lord, no, 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 no. I'll get the vision, but I'm going to have to find somebody else to do the job. Really? Hmm. God might be telling you to change your career path. Go to seminary. Be a preacher. Be a missionary. Oh, there's no money in that. I was looking at my retirement. I just looked at it. There ain't much there. So I have to pray for God to give me good health. And the church said, let me preach. I think one of the greatest things in life will be for me to be preaching all of a sudden to kill over dead. Had to wake the church up, wouldn't it? I mean, you came alive when I fell off the stage into the front pew. <laughs> I just think that'd be awesome to be preaching all of a sudden, just be gone. 
I'd rather be in the watery grave of baptism with somebody than die there. That's, that's my choice. It's whatever God wants. Who knows? He may send me somewhere. I don't know. Russell keeps asking me to come to Seattle. I'm not feeling that call yet. He said it was the third wettest winter in Seattle's history. <laughs> How can it be more wet than it already is? God sometimes is telling you to swallow your pride and be baptized into Christ, but you instead say, you know what, I'm going to keep listening to some more sermons. I need to read some more, study some more about that. I'm not sure if that's what I need to do. They must not really want me as their king. They want something else, God is saying. They want someone else. They want their options and not obedience to me. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will lift you up. It's not about you lifting you up. You humble yourself and let God lift you up. That's what I love about our young people up front. Is they're learning inch by inch by inch what it means to be humble before the Lord. These are very talented young people right up here on the front row. And they are just inch by inch watching God do some great things in them. Now Big T is a big, a big young man, isn't he? That's why he goes by Big T. If he went by Big T and he was a little bitty guy, it wouldn't be, I don't know. But anyway, he goes by Big T. The football players call him Sweet T. <laughs> and growing up in Texas, I like Sweet T. But I like Big T also. But one of the things I like about Big T is when I watch him around little bitty kids. Now, I don't know about you, but this big guy walks up and he holds his hands out like this. And his hands are as big as Oklahoma. And he holds his hands out like that. And these little kids just fall right over to him. And he pulls them right up in here. And there's no greater sense of protection. I believe that boy would give his life to save that little big kid. I think all of them on that front row would do that. All of them on this front row would do that. That's the way they are. Patrick's the same way. He'll go up and take up a little kid, and the kid just jump right up in there. And he sits there and smiles at him like his mother. Does he smile like his mother? That's why I think there's something going on here. I've watched her. Nobody can run a marathon and be smiling. No, it just ain't right. But about mile 24, Lynn's going like this. Maybe she's gasping for air, and I, I, I get, I'm getting it mixed up. But we're faced with the same type of questions today. Do you want God as your king or do you want someone else or something else to sit on the throne? God wants to be the king of your life. He wants to be king so badly that he left heaven, came to earth in order to prove it. And when Jesus, God in flesh, was beaten by the Roman guards and stood silently and endured it, he chose purpose over power. And when he was mocked while hanging on the cross, he suffocated to death. He chose salvation over circumstances. And when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, he chose obedience over options. Pray with me, please. God in heaven, will you help us put, put you where you rightly belong on the throne of our lives? Could we let you be the king of our schedule, the king of our morals, the king of our relationships, the king over the place where we work? And may we prove that commitment through obedience to you 
is what you want. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You need